Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. I'm really happy to be with you today, and I'm really happy to introduce my guest, Jeff Stein. Uh, Jeff and I are going to be talking about truth and justice. Is there truth and justice? Uh, what do you think about that? Because Jeff and I may have a mm, different of opinion. So, welcome, Jeff. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. And yourself? I'm very good. You know, um, I always like to have uh, start out the show with a, a little bit about your personal experiences because it it kind of tells where we both come from, and um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got to be a private investigator and from A to B, you know? I don't know if we have all day, but we'll, <laughs> we'll try to do the Reader's Digest version. Yeah, Reader's Digest. Uh, over, overall, I've been in the investigative and security arena for over 30 years and worked in corporate America running security, loss prevention, safety programs, I transitioned, always on the side, I always worked for a private investigator, uh, part-time, doing various things. So over the last, uh, I guess, 15 years, I transitioned into my own company and specializing in private investigations and security. And in the past 15 years, probably the, the last 10, I really started to work on criminal defense matters personally. Um, my firm has a pretty decent size and we provide different services for both investigative and security but I personally specialize in criminal defense and if you would have asked me years ago Mm. I was always under the motto that people are guilty until proven innocent and then once you really start working on these cases you you realize that's that's not the case yeah yeah so what drew you to criminal defense so I had a few opportunities and a few clients, and as I dug in and listened to their stories, you know, we, we've always, from an investigative standpoint, you, you turn over every rock, right? You're looking for the, the facts, and whether it's a, a criminal case and you're trying to put together a criminal case against an individual or a criminal defense, it's, you're reporting the facts, and that, that's all you're going to do. You're not looking to change the story or show a a different representation. And so as I started doing some criminal defense cases and listened to them and learned how some of them were really outright railroaded and coerced to say certain things, it just really turned into a passion. Now, did you get your bachelor's in criminal justice before or after you started doing criminal defense? Before. Uh, I've been, that was, that was my, that was my goal. Um, to be in the criminal justice field, you know, during uh-huh. college. So that was okay. a long time but, ago. But the curriculum in, because I just, I did this too, the curriculum in a criminal justice uh, degree, regardless of what stage, bachelor's, master's, whatever, it's very law enforcement directed, isn't it? 
It is, and you know, you, there there are some sounds like some different programs and some things that are changing that are putting a little PI work in there into their curriculum as well. Um, but mm-hmm. it, it, overall, it is it's it's law enforcement um, centralized and. And it's, it's nice and to it's, be able to. Yeah, go ahead, and it's law, I was just going to say, and it's law enforcement perspective. It's very interesting because I'm in a class like that now, and I think I'm one of a very few that are not uh, law enforcement experience or active even law enforcement. So it's it's fascinating, really, just to uh, dialogue with uh, somebody that it's kind of the us against them mentality a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it, it, it's, it's interesting because every summer I usually have interns from Westchester University, uh, part of their program, that's, that's where I went as well. And you have to, to graduate, you have to do a practicum, which is an internship, but it's 12 credits. So you're, you're paying you know, a full semester to intern somewhere. And so every, every summer is when they run their practicum. And I usually have criminal justice students uh, for that program and giving them a different perspective, you know, after they're, they're really in the trenches with their coursework and their goal is to become police officers or federal mm-hmm. agents and so forth. So it's nice to be able to show them the, the correct way and the right way to do things and to dot your I's and cross your T's because you're going to have somebody sitting across the table from you trying to dissect it and pick it apart to make sure mm-hmm. that you follow the proper procedures and guidelines. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and, and you know, not, I'm not disparaging, nor are you disparaging law enforcement or police officers. Um, it's, but it is part of the system. And thank you for saying that. And, and I do like to say 99% of them are awesome and, and thank God for them because, you know, they're out there protecting us 24-7 um, all the time. You know, it's just unfortunate there's a few bad apples, just like there is in every profession. You know, Mm -hmm. we see that with private investigators. You see it with doctors. You see it with nurses. You know, every, uh, you see it in the military, politics. (laughs) So every profession has some bad apples. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate. I think that's, I think those bad apples are increasing just a little bit. You know, it's Mm -hmm. just a small percentage point. But, you know, there's there's so much in this day and age with cutting corners and, budget cuts that it just creates some bad behavior at times. It does. And I, now you attended the police academy in in New Jersey. Was that also before you did any criminal defense work? It, it was, absolutely. Yeah. So this was a, a sea change for you, I guess. Ab- absolutely. It, it definitely was. You know, it was, again, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in, in the private sector, um, and in the private investigation sector, working with law enforcement, I've I've worked major million dollar cases with federal agencies, um, local agencies, you know, arresting, putting packaging um, cases together, packaging them up and providing them to the police departments to go make an arrest on, you know, an employee who stole fifteen thousand dollars or an embezzlement uh, charge. So it was always really working on, on that side of the law, trying to prosecute the cases. And it was a definite turnaround. You know, you think that law enforcement just overall shouldn't 
should tell the truth, right? Should do the right thing. And then, you know, when you learn that they're human and you find some people that, that don't, it's definitely an eye opener. Yeah, unfortunately it is. And, and, uh, and the system itself is really, really set up for winning and losing, not truth and justice, unfortunately. That's, that's, that's what <clears throat> is very, very enlightening, depressing, because that, that's true. It's, you know, once you get arrested, you know, the, the, the juries think that they're, they're guilty because they were arrested. But the whole point of the trial is to prove guilt or innocence. It's for, mm-hmm. for both sides to tell their story. And that doesn't always happen. And, you know, they don't always get the, the fair shake. Obviously, with the, the, on the prosecution side, you have the, the, the law enforcement agency, you have the prosecutor's office, the, the county detectives, whoever it is, they have unlimited resources right. to That's right. try to prove their case. But on the other side, they don't have those unlimited resources. And, you know, like just like your, your last two guests, uh, I think they both started off with public defenders. Uh-huh. And, and it's the same thing. Public defenders are great, but, you know, unfortunately their caseloads are so large. I don't think they get, you know, all the time in the world to, to talk to the clients. And then right. from an investigative perspective, the, the, the time and resources and the money aren't always there. You know, they can ask the courts, they can petition the, the courts for um, investigative services, and a lot of times they'll limit it. And the courts, mm-hmm. you know, in, in Philadelphia, for example, Philadelphia courts, if you want to do court-appointed work for Philadelphia, it's $35 an hour. Mm-hmm. And that's really the, the, the fee. And, and listen, the attorneys for court-appointed um, attorneys in Philadelphia, it's still at the same rate that it was in the 1990s. So what attorney wants to do that and how much time and energy are you going to put into that case? It's huh, uh-huh. you're not getting this, the same fair chance that you would if you had unlimited resources. Yeah, that's for sure. And you know what, Jeff, I'm, I'm just as guilty as some of our jurors because when I hear somebody arrested watching the news, we all do this. You hear somebody's arrested watching the news, somebody's arrested. You, those of us that are investigators kind of tear it apart, look at it, and say, and end up with, yeah, they're guilty. You know, I do the same thing. Right. Sure. But, absolutely. But, but when you get in, get into the case, and you start going, oh wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Why would that person say this? And that doesn't fit with this little piece over here. And and uh, you start tearing it apart on the inside of the case, and it's a much different scenario. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I noticed on your bio, Jeff, that you were inducted into the Vidoc Society. Can you talk about that? Because how, how did that happen? I, I've been, are you familiar with the Vidoc Society? I am. Maybe you can tell our listeners, because not everybody probably is. Vidoc Society is, is a, really an elite group of people that are assembled that was started about 30, 35 years ago by three people who, who started the VDOC Society. And, and it's named after VDOC was one of the first, is the first private investigator in, in, in the country. Um, a lot of people think it was Pinkerton, but it was actually VDOC who was, who was a, a converted criminal back in the 1800s. But the, the purpose of VDOC is to help solve cold cases. And so there's cold cases from around the United States, and they actually sponsor law enforcement to 
come in, they, they fly the whatever law enforcement agency it is uh, to Philadelphia once a month, and they will present their case, uh, their cold case, with all the evidence to a group mm-hmm. of people that are, are made up of current and former law enforcement agencies. So you could be a local police detective, uh, state police, uh, people from the medical examiner's office, judges. And again, it's, it's current and retired uh, district attorneys, federal attorneys, uh, some private investigators. So it's really a, a creative, ingenious idea. But So you, you have this group of people who brainstorm for about two hours on this cold case. So you're seeing it from so many different eyes, you know, from a medical examiner, from a doctor, from a coroner, from a private investigator, from, you know, a, a judge, and trying to brainstorm to give the investigative agency some leads on some things to look for. And then they, they assemble a small group from, uh, from the VDOC to continue working with that law enforcement agency to uh, solve the crime, solve the cold case. So it's very... It was an honor to um, to be included in that. It's um, they limit the amount of people, um, so it's just you know not a free for all. But it's a it's a really great concept that was started a long time ago. And um, Bill Flesher uh, is, is one of the founders mm-hmm. and just does a, a fabulous job. Yeah. And so, how, what's the vetting process to to be included in that? Um, you need to be recommended by a current VDOC member, and mm-hmm. you need to have experience working on cold cases, homicides, murders. Okay. Okay. Interesting. That's fascinating. A cold cases are so frustrating because, you know, usually they're really old. Yep. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, how do you, how do you even uh, tackle something that, um, people can't even remember what they did last week, much less 30 years ago, you know? Right. And it, it was so different, you know, 30 years ago. There wasn't DNA. There wasn't mm-hmm. um, computer-aided uh, drawings um, for crime scenes. You know, everything was kind of pen and paper. A lot of the, the detectives who worked those cases back then, they retired. Um, you know, just handwritten notes. And, and the interesting thing, if I can just add about the VDOC Society, they don't want any notoriety. They're, they're not looking for, you know, to, to be in the spotlight. They mm-hmm. want to be behind the scenes, provide that information. And what was really interesting, and, and I'm sure you and a lot of listeners listen or watch the um, different shows on TV, right? There's so many reality shows and mm-hmm. the IT channel and Dis- sure. you know, Discovery IT channel. And there, there was a case that was on there about a... Um, a cold case that was solved uh, that that occurred in Philadelphia at one of the universities. And there's a a book written about the VDOC Society. It's called The Murder Room. It's a really intriguing book. Mm. And in that, they described, after reading that book, they described it was actually the VDOC Society that solved that case. And when it was on the ID channel, they never mentioned it. And again, that's because the VDOC Society doesn't want any notoriety, which mm-hmm. is, it's nice. You know, it's, it's humbling. It's, it's not somebody who wants to, you know, pump their chest and say, look what I did. It's, it's doing it for the right reasons, you know, trying to, to put closure and, and give families peace of mind, you know, that they can close that chapter and move forward. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Well, that's that's fascinating. I, you know, I've known about 
that society for years and knew it existed, but I didn't really know how it operated or or anything like that. Um, so, but you've kind of been on the periphery of, of uh, law enforcement. You were an EMT, right? You, Correct. You were a firefighter. Um, Correct. Nine one one operator. I mean, you kind of, you've kind of been on all the facets here. You know, kind of circling around to the court system. Um, so, was there one case that kind of caught your attention? We're going to have to take a break here in a minute. But was there one case that caught your attention that you went, "Oh wow, this is just this is just wrong. I need to get involved more with criminal defense." There is one, and and it's um, it happened in 1998, and I'm I'm a little limited to what I can talk about because we are um, there's some things going on with that that need to go through the court system. Hopefully mm. this month. In in fact, um, there was a documentary done on this case, and it, it should be coming out sometime later in 2019. So. It will be on the. It should be on the ID channel as well. Um, but the the current ending on that case is not necessarily the current ending. I think there's more to be continued. And I'm I'm sorry for being so elusive. That, on this. No, no, just, that's okay. That's okay. There's things you know? that I, I can't discuss at the moment. Um, but it's really it shows, and it's it's very. There's some things. Like like your um, I, I forget the uh, J- Jason Strong was that his name the uh, the, uh, the f- person you had on two episodes ago uh-huh, uh-huh. uh huh um anyway the, the the individual who said I, I think he eventually wrote a sixteen page um, confession yes right yes. and this case is is you know after. After all these years, there, this person was given an, an opportunity to be resentenced and, you know, say that he did it. Um, it just shows how people get put into situations that I believe confess to things that they didn't do. And people who are not involved in the system always say, you know, how does somebody confess to a crime they didn't do? And it's, it's amazing how common it is. But when you're you're really backed into a corner and you don't know where to turn. You know, it's, it's sort of the, the quick, easy way out. And sometimes it's, it's the only way out, really. Um, it doesn't make it right, <laughs> but mm-hmm. sometimes it's the only way out, you know, of, of that boxed-in corner at that moment. And, and I know I'm being a little um, um, truncated with, <laughs> with that. Um, no, that, I, I don't mean to be, but... <laughs> That's fine, and and that's the that's the box we get put into often. I mean, even even cases that we're working on that are current cases, we can't talk about them. So, right. uh, but you know what, Jeff? We'll have to have you on after the documentary. Said <laughs> when you can't talk about it. Yeah, that I'd would be great. To. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, this is just such a fascinating thing. It never it never changes for me how fascinating it is when you get involved in these uh, kind of situations because even though many of the components are same the same, there's so many things that happen that are unexpected, and and you just go, wow, I would have never thought of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and, and in, in fact. Um, 
I, I don't know if you want me to, to make this statement or you need to take a break, but... No, no, we, the, we're going to go. Okay. Um, I interviewed somebody who was a witness years ago, and I, I had to go to a federal prison to interview him and take his statement, and his name appeared on several different cases after that. And I just re-interviewed him a few months ago. Um, he's, he's not incarcerated anymore. But I have a, a six- or seven-page statement how he was an informant for law enforcement on several cases, several homicide cases, mm. where he gave false and fictitious information to reduce his sentence. And he wants to come clean about it now. And so here's people who were convicted for murder because he claimed that, you know, he saw it, he witnessed it, he, he had information, and he didn't. And law enforcement and even the district attorneys, in, in my opinion, um, even knew that was the case. But they hmm. fed him the information that they wanted to hear, and he regurgitated that information back in his own words to reduce his own sentence. So he really was like a, a career, I don't even know how you label that or what, what you label that. Um, but this just shows you how people get wrongfully convicted because somebody else wants to make a deal. And, and on, you know, again, both of your, your previous guests who were incarcerated for over 15 years, that's something mm-hmm. that happened to them. You know, they were, uh, there, there was witnesses that wrote a statement, you know, that they later recanted. And when you have somebody who recants a statement later on, it's so difficult. Just because they recant it doesn't mean case solved. Now That's you right. have to have corroborating information to, to right. uh, corroborate that uh, recantment. It, it's just it's a challenge. The, the system is, is not set out to help the innocent or the wrongfully uh, accused. It's not. It's, it's there to X's and O's with, you know, the prosecution. You know, it's a mm-hmm. win. Uh-huh. Actually, it's probably better to say wins and losses, right? Because they all want wins. And they don't realize that a loss isn't really a loss. It's, it's the truth. You know, and, and we should all be there. I mean, that's their job is to, to serve and protect the innocent, but they don't. They don't. It's just more of a, a wins and loss column instead of what's the truth. And, you know, again, hence, is there truth and justice for all? Well, and, and certainly that's what everybody believes that, that happens. But the reality is that if a prosecutor loses a few cases, they're, they're not in good standing in their department. They're just not. You know, right. they get, they, get uh, they start getting uh, assignments that are lower level. They get sent to other offices. All kinds of things happen. And, you know, they, the hierarchy at least in the district attorney's offices that I'm familiar with, is, you know, you do the misdemeanor cases and then you do the less serious felonies and then you do the murder cases. And ultimately, if you've shown yourself and gotten lots of convictions, you get a death penalty case. There's something wrong with that picture. (laughs) It's it's very true. And and it... You know, I've, I've said this before, but it's political. You know, it's, it's it is. The, the, the more you do, um, you, you then get promoted to, you know, a, a different section, you know, whether you're doing white-collar crime and now it's, mm-hmm. it's homicides and you're moving up the ladder and, and everybody wants to get promoted. You know, they want that supervisory role. They may want to run for DA. They may want to become a judge. 
one day they want to make me become, you know, a senator, congressman, whatever. But and it's the same thing with the detectives, right? It's you know the detectives are assigned to, mm-hmm. you know, again white collar crime or yep. or sexual abuse victims, and you know now they they get promoted to a homicide detective and. You know, then they get promoted to sergeant, lieutenant, captain. You know, it, it, it's the same exact thing. And it's they need to put closure on those cases. And the more closure they put, the better they look. And I, I think that that's where some things get jaded sometimes. And there's, there's a cloud because mm-hmm. they, they start losing that vision of, you know, seeing the trees through the forest. Or the You're forest right. I mean, the trees. You're you're absolutely right because um, their their promotions, their uh, their performance evaluations, everything is tied into getting convictions. Unfortunately, where where defense attorneys, I have to say, Jeff, I know I know defense attorneys have a bad rap, but I, you know the defense attorneys that I've worked with are some of the most ethical people I know. You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, yep. like you said, there's bad apples, for sure. There's bad apples. There's there's what what is commonly called a dump truck, you know, attorneys that don't do their job, don't read the discovery, don't listen to the, the DVD interviews or whatever. But the majority of, of attorneys that I've run across that do criminal defense are really ethical. I, and, I agree. Uh, I, I do agree, although I, I see a few bad apples because – working on some PCRA cases, the post-conviction relief acts, where you do have ineffective counsel. I think in some of the big cities you do have some some high-name or high-profile defense attorneys who collect that big retainer, you know, and, and again, as, as some of your guests have stated, you know, they, they only met with them once or twice, and, mm-hmm. you know, they got that retainer and try to represent them, and, you know, that's when they do a lot of plea deals, when, you know, they'll they'll say, hey, why don't you take this plea instead of doing life? You're going to do 20 years. So there are a few bad apples there. But yeah. overall, again, I do. I think they're ethical. And, you know, they're really the good ones are the ones who put in, roll up their sleeves, and they want to show that, you know, this person didn't do it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they back off when they learn, you know, you provide them information that says, look, your guy did it. <laughs> he did. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're not trying to change the story. You know, mm-hmm. at that point, they they understand they got to take that information that was given to them and move forward the best way they can. Well, and and I'm sure you've been involved in situations which happens every day where um, somebody's charged with a crime and they're looking at just like what you said. They may be looking at uh, life in prison. They may be looking at life without parole. They're and they're 19, 20 years old. And mm-hmm. the risk is so huge because everything's stacked against them. And no matter how many times they say they're innocent or how many times, or even how many times the defense can substantiate the claim, trying to prove it is a whole different ballgame. Right. Absolutely. I, I, it's so true. I, I, I recently worked a case that uh, a girl was... Um, extradited from Arizona to Pennsylvania on a check uh, uh, check fraud for $1,500, where she was really the victim. She received a check in payment for something, and so she received this for goods sold. Mm-hmm. And the, they ended up bringing her from Arizona via van, and, and 
this was new to me, but it took almost 11 days to get there. Um, she drove in a van for 11 days from Arizona all across the, the United States to Pennsylvania, where she was then in jail for almost two and a half months for a crime mm. she didn't commit. She right. was a victim. And when I, I spoke to the detective, and, and there, were, there, was, uh, there was another victim. This, this, there was more than one. And it was the same story. It was the same M.O. And, uh-huh. she rece- and from a different state, she received a check for payment uh, for services. You know, it's one of those scams. There, there are scams all over. In fact, I, I've been, uh, I, I get um, solicited, you know, for these scams. Uh-huh. And she, when I spoke, I'm sorry, when I spoke to the detective, he said, you know, sometimes you have to go after the middleman, you know, just, just to get the, the payment. Like middleman, she's not a middleman. <laughs> they were using, really, they were using the law to go after her civilly to get the money back for where that check originated from, which that's a, it's a civil case. It's not a criminal case. There, there's yeah. no criminal intent whatsoever. She didn't even know it was a bad check. So sometimes you've got to wonder, you know, do people abuse their authority? And yeah, yeah, for why? sure. <laughs> you know, I guess why is the question. Well, and you know, the other thing that happens. I mean, you're telling you, this happens every day, actually every day. But I had a the probably the most distasteful cases for anybody are child molestation cases, and they're mm-hmm. just they're really hard to work on. But I can tell you that um, many of them are false claims. So many yeah. that I lost track of my stats after I got to about 55%. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, and the primary, the one I remember the, the most is a, a guy that was a prime, con, prime candidate for being arrested because he was an alcoholic. He was living, he was homeless. He was living in a trailer in a parking lot, you know, and he was accused of molesting his neighbor, neighbor's daughter, four years old. Horrible case. But wow. you know what? It wasn't him. It wasn't him. It was her mother's boyfriend. <laughs> so, you know, things happen where people get accused, maybe because they look like somebody, maybe because the person can't talk about the person that really did it, so they have to talk about somebody else. You know, it's all kinds of things that unless, I mean, that's where investigators are so important. Yep. Because I've had if a- it, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I've had a few rape cases like that, and, and you know, to me, rape is rape, rape should almost be like a, a death penalty case. You know, I mean, I, I throw the book at him. If somebody committed rape, I just think that's that, almost as bad as murder. Um, but again, there's a lot of false accusations, and in the last year and a half or so, I had two people, two cases that they were found innocent of rape, and I'm working on two more cases. Uh, one that I. I I know, um, actually, two, that they didn't commit it. Um, one, it, it was just, it's a revenge. Uh, another was an intoxicated person. Uh, um, I, I don't know why the, the allegations are there, but people make these allegations for different reasons. And, you know, again, when you think of, to me, when you think of rape, you think of really the, the worst thing that you can possibly do against an individual next to uh-huh. killing them. And maybe uh-huh. that's even worse. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't know, but maybe that's even worse. And to make that false claim, but it's it's something that you have to take very seriously. You know, I mean, it's you have to investigate it, but 
you really need to dot your I's and cross your T's and, and learn all of the details. And you made a really good point, Jeff, earlier that, you know, I, I guess we have to consider the roles of various individuals. But, you know, the, the police department, their job is really to get enough probable cause to arrest somebody. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean the case is proven. They just have right. have probable cause. And then they take that case to the district attorney who decides whether to file the case or not. So once it gets filed, like you said, once it gets filed and it's charged, then, it you know, it's kind of all downhill. The person's it, it in, is. <laughs> you know, particularly the person's in custody where they can't help it, out. It, and most of them are. And and they can be in custody anywhere from a year to five years waiting for trial, just waiting right. for the trial, you know, only to be found not guilty five years later. It's, yeah. it's where is the, you know, and, and I don't, I don't know what the fix is on, on that other than doing the job right the first time, you know, and, and really <laughs> documenting. That's the important thing. And they, and they don't, you know, I've, I've had, a case where it was a high-profile murder case, and the the district attorney said to me the day that they were going to drop the charges is after he served almost two years in jail. Mm-hmm. And he said, Jeff, I know you spoke to more people than we did. Can I get a copy of all your notes? Well, how mm-hmm. is that feasible? How is that possible when you had the, the homicide detective unit, you had the, the detectives in the, in the prosecutor's office? Why do I talk to more people than you? You know, mm-hmm. it, it really doesn't make sense to me, but that's an example of them not doing a thorough job. And, again, is it budgetary reasons? You know, is their caseload too big? I, I don't know. But that's not fair no, to the individual you know, that sat in jail for two years. I think it's, um, personally, I think that typically what happens, and, and it probably is resource-based, but it's um, they work their theory. They decide on what happened. They work their theory. And uh, and they're focused on that. That's my thinking. But it may be all red. <laughs> yeah, well, again, this, this is one that I'd love to say the theory because but the, the, the person who did it is still out there. He's still wanted. Um, so I, I don't want to give this away, but the theory didn't even fit. It, the theory actually fit for who I told them did it. Totally oh, fit. Wow. And, and they still didn't follow up on that. Uh, actually, again... <laughs> There, there was eight people involved in an altercation. One died. Uh, that leaves seven. They talked to six. And the, the mm-hmm. seventh person is the one who did it. Well, why didn't you go talk to him? We couldn't mm-hmm. find him. <laughs> okay. So they just go to the next, you know, it's, it's almost like, in, you know, somebody gets hurt in a football game, next man up. So <laughs> you can't find the, the, the person, next right. man, all right, we'll pin it against this guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the integrity units that are now getting started across the country in the various district attorney's offices. You've had some experience with them. What's been your experience? And Well, uh, well tell us what they are. First, why don't you say, explain what, the, what that is. So, really, it's, um, I believe that the last I looked, there was 33 conviction integrity units throughout the United States. And they work, they go over all of the previous, not all of, but I guess, you know, they, they pick and choose certain cases to, to go through and make sure that they were investigated correctly. Really, it's, it's like a check and balance. Um, 
to make sure that the in- integrity of the case, the integrity of the conviction, was the right the right thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a lot of what you and I do. <clears throat> it's providing you know resources, government paid resources, for the person who's behind bars, who's convicted. So they go through those those cases and almost like with with death penalty cases, you know, where they're required to on the death penalty case, on the capital cases to uh-huh. reinvestigate it to make sure that they got the right thing, they're the right person. Well, that's right. what they do on these cases. And, and I think every major city in the United States should have one. They're, again, it's a check and balance, but not only should they have these conviction integrity units to, you know, spot check, if you will, I guess probably in layman's terms, that's probably a good way of explaining it, is they're, mm-hmm. they're spot-checking on all of the you know, cases from that department or that, that county. And there should be additional follow-up, though. You know, when you start to see a trend or a pattern, mm-hmm. you know, what do they do from there? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, hopefully they, they make the right decisions and it's not uh, another politically motivated process where they just sweep it under the carpet. But, you know... In, in Philadelphia, for example, there's actually a, a publicized document that talks about Philadelphia police officers that are, not, that are on the do not call list to testify. So there's over, I want to say there's, there's over 60 police officers on that list. But of those 60 police officers, there's 39, 29 or 30, 29, I think there's about 30. Um, police officers who are not allowed to testify in court unless approved by the deputy DA. Wow. Now, the, uh, let's, Jeff, let's take a, I want to get into this a little bit more. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back okay. because this is very Sounds interesting. Good. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to FRANCIE at PISDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm back here with Jeff Stein. Uh, a very good investigator from Pennsylvania, and we're just talking about wrongful convictions and reinvestigating crimes and things like that. So, Jeff, you were just talking about uh, this do not call list. So, would you expand on that a little bit? It's, this is just fascinating. Yeah, this this is a document that was put out by the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, and the document lists 66 former and current Philadelphia police officers whose misconduct was problematic enough that the former district attorney, Seth Williams, um, decided their names should generally be shared with defense attorneys before trial. And there, there's asterisks by, or, or it's spelled out by the ones that are do not call as a witness in court unless, impro- unless approved by a high-ranking district attorney. Um, for whatever reasons, you know, whatever allegations against them or criminal charges, um, anything that they may have had. But, you know, and and it lists um, that there was officers who were dismissed, they were suspended, um, whether it's two days, five days, seven days. Um, Some were, you know, suspended and transferred to another unit. Uh, Reprimands, um, it just goes on and on. You know, there was uh, some that may have been charged with a crime, um, some that... uh, I'm looking at the list, one that pled guilty to making a false entry in a police report, um, found guilty of lying during an investigation, found guilty of lying during an investigation, engaging in harassment, harassing conduct towards a police officer and failure to properly supervise. Um, The list goes on and on. It's just, you know, there's there's a lot of things. Now, uh, let me just say, you know, some of them who have not, what I just read was found guilty or pled guilty. So right. there are some that may have been charged with something, and you know, like like anything else, they're they're not guilty until convicted and, and proven. Um, but you know, there, there's a lot. I, I uh, and, and there's some that are on this list that sh- or that are not on this list that I know should be. For example, right. I had a case that the um, uh, the district attorney, after I met, he was uh, pro se, so he was representing himself, the client. And I went in with the day of the trial with the district attorney to meet in the judge's chambers and told them uh, a few things that, one, the two detectives, narcotics officers, who said that they had a CI, that, that they witnessed purchase drugs from him, those two, first of all, those two narcotics detectives were suspended, actually they were terminated because they had, on a random drug test, they had drugs in their system. So they were fired. However, they still got to collect their pension, which I don't understand. Um, okay. and, and I know I just kind of sidestep things, but that just frustrates me. Um, 
But the day that this person, the day that the police accused him or, or testified that they witnessed him selling drugs to their CI, he was peeing in a cup because he was on probation. And, huh. and so I was able to prove that he wasn't even there at the time of the arrest, at the time uh-huh. of the, the uh, offense. Uh-huh. And then on top of it, the search warrant was null and void because they listed it was a single-family dwelling when it was a multi-family dwelling. So they dropped all charges. But those two officers aren't even on this list. So there's more that, that should be. Um, so, so you just have Jeff, things like that. Do you have a process in Pennsylvania where um, – we call it a pitches motion in California. It's a motion to um, to get any like offenses, like say somebody's charged with uh, uh, some kind of misconduct during a case, and if there's like offenses, um, the defense attorney can file a motion, and those offenses, any offenses against this officer, goes to the judge, and the judge then decides what to turn over. Do you have that? We do, and, and I, I'd like to say that every jurisdiction is a little bit different. You know, in Philadelphia, I always say that Philadelphia, it's a, it's its own state. They, they just beat it, you know, a different tune than the rest of the, the state of Pennsylvania. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's difficult because you got to get their approval. You know, just like the same thing holds true with the Pennsylvania State Police. It's difficult to get that information. Um, they will selectively provide what they want to provide mm-hmm. so you can motion for it and crush your fingers and, and hope you get it you know in, in the smaller police departments you will but the, the bigger ones it'll become more of a challenge you know and and as we know police officer personnel files are confidential but there's something wrong with that picture absolutely right. i mean um it doesn't seem like those kind of things should be confidential but you know, if I were king, I would do things differently. So, <laughs> so the other thing—the other thing I want to talk about that I think is really important—is these. Um, um, I, I'm not sure what to call them. The uh, where the time has run. You only have, like you said, 60 days to file mm-hmm. something. And uh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yep. go ahead and talk about the, the post-conviction relief acts. So they're, <clears throat> I, I believe they're pretty similar across the United States. I, I don't think it, each state may have their own um, variation, I guess. But the Post-Conviction Relief Act is where somebody who's been convicted and found guilty, for them to get a new trial, they need to file a PCRA. And there's one of two ways to, to get that overall, and, and that's that you're able to... to document and, and identify that you had ineffective counsel during the time mm-hmm. of your trial. You know, so your attorney didn't, didn't call the right witnesses. There was witnesses available. You know, he, he just didn't, didn't do his job, bottom line. Right. And then the other way of getting a, a PCRA to move forward in the system is to show that there was new evidence that wasn't available at the time of the trial. So right. let's just say that there was a, a witness, but nobody knew about that witness at the time of the trial, and 10 years later that person comes forward because they, they found God or you know, they, they feel, feel bad or, or just nobody asked them. You know, nobody right. confronted them, and they said, oh, yeah, I was there, and I saw that it was Jimmy, not Johnny, that uh-huh. kind of thing. Uh-huh. And 
the unfortunate thing is once you identify, once you make this, this allegation or, or let's say that there's new information that wasn't available at the time of the trial and somebody writes a letter to the inmate and tells them that, the clock starts ticking. So you have 60 days to file your motion. And if and you don't six, file that yeah. motion within 60 days, and, and, and again, your, your, your guest had something similar where he thought he had a year to file something and he turns uh-huh. out... It was a year, you know, based on this date, minus this, minus that, whatever. Okay. You know, the, the inmates, they're not, even though they go to the law library, and a lot of inmates who've been incarcerated for several years, they become really good attorneys in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Right, You know, right. because they're studying the law. They're, they're self-studying, and they're in the law library every day trying to, to um, prove their innocence and, you know, f- learn as much as they can. But honestly, the average person doesn't know that you have 60 days, so... You know, you find this information out, you hire an investigator, and he goes and takes a statement, gets an affidavit saying that, yep, you know, the, it was Jimmy who did it and not Johnny. And, you know, because Joe, Joe Blow says this. So now you, you provide that to the inmate, and he gets that letter, and he calls his family and says, hey, we, we, need, to, we need to get an attorney if he doesn't want to do it himself, like a lot of them mm-hmm. do. So, mm-hmm. you know, now he goes and he has to trying to raise money through his family. And, you know, an attorney yeah. on, on a criminal defense matter or PCRA or anything else, you know, you're, you're probably looking at a minimum of $5,000 retainer. Uh-huh. Anywhere, you know, from 5000 to 50000 And now they have to go out and search to, to get funding, you know, to be able to go get an attorney. And then they got to get an attorney. Well, next thing you know, it's three, four months went by. It's too late. That information's not valid. Which makes no sense. Why? Why is that yeah. fair? How, how does that help the wrongfully accused or the innocent? You know, it's just something that it, it makes absolutely no sense. But yet, on on you know, a, a homicide, a murder, right? There's no um, right. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you, you can, can file charges go on forever. Later. Yeah, it can go on forever. Right? But you're <laughs> yeah. right. 60 days is nothing. I mean, you know, I mean, you and I know, like you said, people can be in jail for five years. I had one that was in for seven before he was tried. You know, people, 60 days is nothing. Mm-hmm. And and there's and there's so many situations like that I, across the country, I think, where um, you have so much time to file, whether it's an appeal, whether it's a which a writ of habeas corpus, or or uh, once once it's filed, you have so many I don't know t- days to to finish it up. And once that passes, you've lost your remedy. And right, or right. the other thing that drives me particularly crazy is you can't bring up once an issue has been denied, no matter how well it's con connected to something else that's come up, it can't be brought up again. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, again, it just comes back to the original question, is there truth and justice for all? Right. And, you know, statute of limitations is the word I was looking for, right? So, you know, on a, on a murder, there is no statute of limitations. But you've been convicted, and now you have new evidence that can set you free, and uh-huh. you have 60 days. Yeah. Well, Where's the, where's the, as, as an average person, where's the logic in that? And, and nobody knows that. I mean, who, who knows that unless you're an attorney, you know, who specializes in this or an investigator right. who specializes in this. But, 
you know, when you have somebody who truly didn't commit that crime and they've, they've, whether they've been incarcerated before or not, you know, on a, on something else, whether it's drugs, motor vehicles, you know, something not as severe, they don't know about a PCRA. So they, they need to study this and lost attorneys, you know, they, they have what, seven years of schooling <laughs> to learn all this. Uh-huh. An inmate has what, <laughs> you know, I mean, they may have life, but it, it, after 60 days, it, it's too late. They missed that boat. Well, not only that, but attorneys don't get much uh, criminal defense in law school, and they absolutely don't get anything about working with an investigator. So mm-hmm. often we get, you, you and I work for people that are out of law school. Maybe they've been doing lawyering for a while, and they're now they're involved in the criminal defense arena, and they don't. They don't know what to do with an investigator. True, very it, it's true. Really, it's really amazing. So, um, mm-hmm. it's, and it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. And I don't, you know, do you know what the solution is? Because I don't. I, I don't think there's any one solution uh, other than they need to really reevaluate. I, I think for PCRAs, I don't think, you know, from in regards to the PCRA, they need to change that time from 60 days to, I don't know, a year, two years, unlimited. What difference does it make? You know, what if you, what if you got a letter? Um, I, 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 get, I get so much mail, right, and how much junk mail. And I, I get stuff that I, I put on my desk, and it gets mm-hmm. mixed in a bunch of piles, and I forget about sure. it. You know, I, sure. I really do. So, I mean, now I don't know. I, I can't speak for anybody else or an inmate, but... Or if they receive a letter and they open it up and, you know, they're having a bad day or they're in solitary confinement, you know, they're, they're locked down. What if they don't open it right away? Mm-hmm. Um, and now, now it's, uh, in Pennsylvania, you can't even, anybody who's incarcerated in a, a state correctional institute, you can't send the letter directly to the jail. You've got to send it to Florida, <clears throat> to a processing center what? in Florida. And the, so the mail... When I'm sending to a client who's incarcerated in Pennsylvania, I have to send to an address in Florida, and they, if they scan it for drugs and poison and whatnot, and then they forward it back to the prison. And same thing, when the inmate writes to me, they're now writing to their return address. It goes oh to Florida gosh. before it comes to me. And so that delays, it takes three, four weeks just to receive that. Jeff, this is a perfect ending to the show. I, I'm astonished by that. Just totally astonished. Um, I'd love to have you back on again. And uh, we're out of, out of time. This has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. And so um, if people need to get a hold of you, Jeff, uh, what's the, your website? Uh, www.elpspda.com. Okay, great. Thank you so much, uh, folks, if you want to get a hold of Jeff. You're welcome. It's PIs Declassified, folks. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 